When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The reputation of Mary I of England, the country's first crowned Queen Regnant, has been overshadowed throughout history by that of her half-sister, Elizabeth I. In fact, Mary has been worse than overshadowed. By comparison to the glittering accolades attached to Elizabeth, Virgin Queen, Gloriana, one of England's greatest ever monarchs, Mary has been seen as bigoted, stupid, bloodthirsty, dowdy, unnatural and barren in every sense of the word. Today, to discuss these two sister queens and to attempt to reach some fresh conclusions, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anna Whitelock, historian, author and broadcaster. She holds a chair in the History of Monarchy at City University. Her books include Mary Tudor, England's First Queen, and Elizabeth's Bedfellows, an intimate history of the Queen's Court. Who better to ask about these two Tudor monarchs? Anna, it is a real pleasure to chat with you today. We've had kind of parallel careers, haven't we? Yeah. Both been interested in monarchy, both been interested in the Tudors, and just approach things slightly differently, but always alongside each other. Absolutely. Both have blonde, curly hair, which <laughs> occasionally I'm mistaken for you, which I take as incredibly flattering. And vice versa. Um, but yeah, you're right. We've slightly been in tandem in different ways, which is always really interesting. And I think I came across you, first of all, when you were working as a curator at Hampton Court and doing part of their reinterpretation of Henry VIII's apartment. So that was really interesting. And the big Henry VIII conference that was there for the 500th year. And so you've been on my radar for a long time. I don't think we've ever actually had a proper Tudor back and forth conversation. So it's great to have the opportunity. This is long overdue. So we thought that we would compare Mary I versus Elizabeth I. So I suppose we ought to first of all ask whether this is at all fair to compare Mary five years reign with Elizabeth for 45 years. Are we setting out on a false quest in the first place? Absolutely not. I'm sensing your cynicism already, which is excellent. So no, I would say right from the start that Mary, of course, was the first crowned Queen of England and Elizabeth managed to, in some sense, build on the fact that Mary had negotiated what female rule looked like and Elizabeth was able to learn from mistakes but also follow her example 
And so although Mary's reign was only short, I actually would say that that adds to her significance. There's two images which I think sort of sums this up, or at least is a really good way in. I think the first image is one of the tomb in Westminster Abbey, where Elizabeth and Mary are there buried. Mary beneath Elizabeth in a tomb with the Latin inscription, partners both in throne and grave, here rest we two sisters in the hope of one resurrection. It was only quite recently that it was determined that Elizabeth hadn't originally been buried there, that she'd been buried in the tomb with her grandfather and grandmother, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And actually, James I, the cheeky monkey, who wanted to have that spot for himself when he died as a founder of a new dynasty like Henry VII, ordered that Elizabeth's body be dug up and moved three years after her death and placed on top of Mary. And I think in a way that sort of sums up how Mary's reputation has been buried beneath that of her sister Elizabeth. And this tomb is, of course, to Elizabeth. It's not to Mary. And it's in a sense very odd that the two are there together. But I also think that James is trying to, in that, expose the kind of falsehood of all of the championing of Elizabeth as the Virgin Queen, because essentially what he's done there is create a mausoleum of barren Tudor women. Neither Mary and Elizabeth produced an heir. And of course, on the other side of the aisle in Westminster Abbey, he dug up and brought down the A1, I don't think it was the A1 then, to Westminster from Peterborough, Mary, Queen of Scots, his mother, and put her in the line of fertile women on the other side. So I think that image is really instructive to think about how Mary and Elizabeth have been considered. Elizabeth very much dominating Mary. And I suppose the other one which I think is really interesting is the fact that Elizabeth's coronation robes had previously been Mary's and on Mary's death they were refurbished and then passed on to Elizabeth. So I like to think of Elizabeth as the hand-me-down queen. That's really interesting because I absolutely think there is a problem quite often with recovering Mary from the shadow cast by Elizabeth. She's so often used as Elizabeth foil. And you've alluded to one of the ways in which that's done in that when we talk about Mary being childless, she's barren. When we talk about Elizabeth being childless, it's a virtue. And that is immediately one of the ways in which a common idea is told in different ways to make different things out of both of them. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, I think the issue for queens, of course, is that not only do they have to provide an heir as kings do, but they have to produce an heir. And so their bodies are at stake in a completely different way. Now, I would argue that Mary did what she was expected to do, which was to marry and provide an heir, which was necessary for the future of the Tudor dynasty and a Catholic settlement. Elizabeth didn't even try. And of course, Elizabeth... Again, when I worked on my book, Elizabeth's Bedfellows, I mean, it was really striking how in the early parts of Elizabeth's reign, particularly, she was the little whore. She was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, the great whore. There was all kinds of rumours spread by hostile Catholic ambassadors that she was not chaste. It was only much later in Elizabeth's reign where really this whole thing about virginity emerges to solve the problem, which is what do you do with a barren postmenopausal queen on the throne who's unmarried and not going to have any children? And suddenly the fact that she's married the nation and her body has remained virginal is seen as a great success. Whereas Mary had put her body on the line. She tried to have an heir, but as you say, she'd failed and she'd had these dreadful phantom pregnancies. It's interesting too that... The way that we remember them is 
absolutely encased in these ideas of, as you say, the later idea of the Virgin Queen that's attached to Elizabeth, Gloriana and Bloody Mary, which is something that actually, as a title, the more one looks at it, it's misogynistic, it's xenophobic, it's religiously intolerant. And of course, I suppose it speaks to the centuries of history since. But is it fair in any way? Well, I mean, obviously that epithet has stuck with Mary for centuries. I mean, I'd like to say she's a political pioneer, but it's Bloody Mary that people remember. And that was very much down to the brilliant construction by John Fox, by his Book of Martyrs, which was first published in 1563 and then went through so many editions and really established Mary's reputation as Bloody Mary. He doesn't actually refer to her as Bloody Mary. People often think it is John Fox, but he refers to the horrible and bloody time of Queen Mary. And what's striking, when I was working on Mary... John Fox is still taught and referred to in Sunday schools. I mean, there's still a certain tradition that really looks at that as a text. And clearly over the centuries, that's had a huge impact on how Mary is perceived. And that was, of course, quite deliberate. It's also true that, as you say, there's sort of issues of misogyny and religion play a really important role here. People point to John Knox's first blast of the trumpet, But what's noticeable there is that was targeted against all Catholic women. And then Elizabeth came at an unfortunate moment just after that was published. But actually, it was largely an attack on Catholic women. What's also quite striking is that in the succession crisis, which brought Mary to the throne, to some extent, the issue of gender wasn't even in play because the rival claimant was Lady Jane Grey. And actually, given the length that Henry VIII had gone to to have a male heir, The fact that in this moment, actually gender and the issue that this would be the first crown queen wasn't actually the things that were being hurled between the two sides. It was religion. Yes, I like the way you sidestepped the question. You referred to Mary I as the first crowned queen as opposed to the first queen regnant, which I thought was very clever. So we weren't bringing Jane in. Well, I've had lots of intellectual arm wrestles about that. I would say, yes, she proclaimed herself queen. But she wasn't crowned queen. And also at the same time that Lady Jane was being proclaimed queen, Mary too was proclaiming herself queen. The device for the succession by which Edward devolved the crown eventually on Lady Jane Grey, yes, had been signed by the sort of London notables, but actually it hadn't been ratified in Parliament. But I don't know, what's your view? Are you a Lady Jane was actually Queen Jane girl? I think I am a Lady Jane was Queen Jane Because I think you're absolutely right that it hadn't gone through Parliament. I mean, I think if the device for the succession had gone through Parliament, she would have legally been Queen, however problematic that might be in other ways. She may not have legally been Queen, but I don't think that stops her having been Queen. (laughs) If you think about people taking thrones throughout history, the rightness of their claim has not always been the determining factor. And I then think that Mary took the throne probably by right and by might, 13 days later. So I think that we can both name Jane as Queen and also acknowledge that Mary, in the end, had the winning hand in a variety of ways. But then what about the idea that in order to ultimately embody the crown and be Queen, you have to, yes, take control of the Tower of London and the Armoury and the Treasury and all of that, which Lady Jane Grey certainly did, but then be crowned and anointed and then call Parliament and that three-stage process that was necessary. Why wouldn't you describe Lady Jane as a pretender? 
Well, I would say that that three-stage process is, well, actually neither necessary nor sufficient. Like, I think that in some ways that we have other monarchs who are not crowned, Edward V, Edward VIII. So I don't think a coronation is essential to name somebody as the monarch. And frankly, there's not enough time, 13 days in the summer months, to call Parliament. So I don't think either of those things is necessary. In some ways, it comes down to a question of perspective in terms of whether we say that she's a pretender or not, of course. And that has been the dominant perspective over the centuries. Because Mary became queen, then it depended on seeing Jane's claim to the throne as something illegitimate, and as a pretender. And that's been the sort of centuries-long version of events. I think that, named as she was by Edward, with the body of witnesses that signed up to that, and the fact that she was proclaimed queen, there was a period when she was queen. Yes, I would accept what you say. However, during that period, Mary was also issuing proclamations, which at the top of them read, by the queen. So I suppose the other side of that is then if Lady Jane at that point is queen, what status does Mary have when she's proclaiming herself queen? Is she just completely invalid? Is she the pretender? Well, I think that we can acknowledge Mary as queen from the 19th of July, 1553, but that I would suggest that from the 6th of July to the 19th of July, Lady Jane Grey was Jane the first, albeit uncrowned. We shall see what your listeners think. I'd be interested to see where the public view is. But I think getting back to the Mary and Elizabeth thing, what I would say is that the succession crisis was remarkable and the scale of Mary's achievement was remarkable. And I always think if it had been the way that Elizabeth had won the throne, how many Hollywood treatments would we have seen of Mary or, in that sense, Elizabeth riding out at Framingham Castle, rallying troops, being prepared to fight for the throne? And being, you know, this figure who escaped under cover of darkness from Hertfordshire when she got a tip off that her brother was dying and that there was a plan to basically lure her to court and then capture her. But instead, she travelled on horseback first to Kenninghall in Norfolk and then to Framlingham Castle and was ready to fight for the throne. And I think that was genuinely remarkable. What's also remarkable is the fact that Lady Jane Grey's government, it was the Duke of Northumberland who was trying to make it about religion, to say this is a Catholic versus Protestant battle. And there were all kinds of shrill Protestant noises coming out of London. And I think Mary and her advisers, and of course her advisers at this point were essentially people from the East Anglian and home counties who had been in her household and were incredibly loyal, but they weren't experienced government figures. But they were, and she clearly took the view that they should play down her Catholicism. And instead, it was about legitimacy. And again, I think that was a shrewd political calculation that she knew that if she emphasised the point that she was this Catholic queen, even though, of course, during the period of her brother's reign, she'd been very public in displaying her Catholicism. In that moment, during the succession crisis, she played that down. So I think both for sort of her political pragmatism but also for the kind of courage that she showed. She should be applauded. And as I say, if it had been Elizabeth, I'm sure we would never hear the end of it. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we see pictures of Elizabeth as the warrior queen in every biopic that's ever made. At Tilbury, I'm thinking of Kate Blanchett, of course, in that armour, giving the speech that she may or may not have given. And 
actually, there's a film missing here. There's a, a moment where Mary I is clearly operating as a sort of warrior queen that we just don't tell that story. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. And of course, she was also advised during Edward's reign to actually flee to the continent. There's a kind of remarkable episode where she was all ready to go and then she decided that, no, ultimately she was going to have to stay if she was going to have a chance to win the throne. So, yeah, I think purely on the basis of her accession, she has to be given much more credit than generally historiography and the public narrative would allow. And also the fact that there was this much more moderate position on religion initially, understanding that that might be divisive. And then, of course, she had to negotiate being a woman in a very much a man's world. It's a cliche, but okay, even if we park the argument about Lady Jane Grey, we definitely get to a point where a woman had never been crowned before. So what does that even look like? What kind of legitimacy does that have? Would she have her hair up or down in the coronation procession? Would she hold both scepters, that of a queen consort and what a king would have previously held? And also on the eve of the coronation, that whole ritual about the Knights of Bath being created where they plunge semi-naked into a bath and then emerge and kiss the monarch's shoulder. That was a ritual that simply couldn't be the done thing with a female monarch. And so that had to change. And so there's a whole series of things that had to be considered and negotiated for the first time. And again, you know, this is then something that Elizabeth was able to borrow from and build on. But Mary had blazed the first trail. How was the gender discussed in both reigns? The issue of gender comes to the fore, particularly around marriage and I guess the absolute assumption and expectation that they would marry. And that is both because there was an expectation that women were the weaker sex and they needed to have a male rational partner and provide the masculine element in government. Because, of course, a queen couldn't lead an army into battle and those kind of tournaments, that very sort of martial aspect of monarchy couldn't be performed by a woman. And so there was a real understanding that there needed to be that kind of masculine element in government, but also the overriding need to produce an heir. This is what I would say is one of the fundamental charges against Elizabeth, that she didn't marry and therefore she didn't even attempt to provide an heir. But what comes at stake, though, is, first of all, who is the suitable marriage candidate? But in Elizabeth's reign, even, when marriage isn't an issue in the sense that there is a particular candidate ultimately that is in the frame. Her body is discussed at length, whether she's having regular periods, whether she's chaste. Ambassadors are talking to her laundresses about whether she menstruates regularly and so on. And so just the sort of discussion of the female body actually in both cases whether it be in Mary's case, whether she's pregnant, whether she's got swollen breasts, all of these kind of descriptions and suggestions. And then in Elizabeth's reign, it's almost Elizabeth had the most sort of famous menstrual cycle in Europe with people sort of trying to think whether she was going to be fertile and healthy and therefore whether she was a good marriage prospect. So I think in that sense, the gender and the body are very much in play in both reigns. Even though I would argue that in and of itself, gender can perhaps be overstated as everything completely has to change, the reign is fundamentally weaker. I don't buy that. I would say that in Mary's reign, for example, the traditional view has been that Mary was distant from the Privy Council, which was run obviously by the men, 
and so on. And the PhD work that I did was very much looking at her private or informal networks of power and people that would have been previously in the privy chamber. And of course, we both know Starkey's infamous work about informal politics and the gentlemen of the privy chamber having a very significant political role and the value of trust over experience and so on. So the traditional narrative of Mary's reign was she was distant from the Privy Council, but also that her Privy Chamber was depoliticised because it was filled with women for the first time. And therefore there wasn't these informal environments of council. And so because she didn't have either, simply she was detached politically. And I would argue that, in fact, Mary did have political intimate. For example, Simon Renard, the Spanish ambassador, there's accounts of him visiting her at night to avoid detection and avoid suspicion. And then later, Cardinal Reginald Paul and then, of course, Philip and her household men from the years before she became queen. So she did have these informal networks of power and influence. And actually, if you look at Mary's reign, the key decisions or policies of it, if we think of it as the reunion with Rome, the marriage and then war with France, they were essentially decisions taken outside of the Privy Council in conversations with others and then dictated to the Privy Council as essentially fait accompli. So the idea that Mary was somehow apolitical and away from politics, I don't think really stands up. And in that sense, I suppose in both Elizabeth's reign and Mary's reign, the idea that a feminine court is inevitably a depoliticised court in terms of the immediate surroundings of the monarch, the bedchamber, the privy chamber, so on, is just nonsense. Is that analysis of the Privy Council and the relationship to power one that's happening in contemporary terms? I'm struck by what you said about the sort of body being a subject of discussion. And I remember Raphael Hollinshed's description of the coronation, which is that Mary finds the crown so heavy that he says she's fain to bear up her head with her Mm. hand, which is obviously this image of a ruler unable to carry the weight of her crown, it's suggesting incapacity in more than just a physical way. So is this comment contemporary or is it something that historians have only made about the Privy Council and the relationship to power? Largely, it's historical assumptions. Part of the problem in looking at the informal channels of power and conversations and networks and so on is that they're not recorded and documented in the same way, which is just so frustrating because... In a way, it's really obvious that when you think about a female monarch, and obviously this applies to both Mary and Elizabeth, the number of hours they would spend with certain women being dressed and undressed, I mean, literally a couple of hours at each end of the day, the idea that, you know, anybody who goes to any kind of hairdresser, beautician or whatever, the kinds of things you talk about and you just get drawn into this kind of sphere of trust and so on. So the idea that a female monarch wouldn't be talking and sharing intimacies and therefore seeking counsel and so on from the women immediately around her is a kind of nonsense. But of course, we'll never properly know because of the nature of the sources and these things weren't recorded. One of the things that Elizabeth is described as both at the time and subsequently is being indecisive. But then at the same time, that has been also seen as an asset. That whole idea about her creating the factions as a way of divide and rule and creating factions then ruling above them. You know, and Elizabeth, in a sense, is seen not as a politically weak figure for her indecisiveness. Whereas Mary is seen as being blinded by her Catholicism with the intensity of a nun. Sterility was the conclusive note of her reign. 
And it's just amazing how many of those descriptions linger. And then, of course, that she was in love with her husband and that somehow meant that she was compromised in the decisions, for example, at the end of her reign, where... England declare war on France. The narrative is England got drawn into Philip's war and then they lost Calais. It wasn't simply, I'll do whatever Philip asked me to do, but certainly that's been the narrative. And I think the very fact that Elizabeth doesn't marry meant that the narrative could be created whereby Elizabeth, in a sense, was kind of all English, where Mary was not only half Spanish, of course, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, but then she married a Spaniard. And just to make it even worse for Mary, it was Mary's husband that ultimately sent the Spanish Armada, which Elizabeth was able to defeat, even though the English weather played quite a significant part too. In a way, things have been stacked against Mary, both in terms of the brevity of her reign, the fact that Elizabeth was able to have greater room for manoeuvre around, for example, not marrying, in a way that Mary just couldn't have. I mean, this idea that you would be the first crown queen and not marry just wasn't going to fly. Yes, I think it's so interesting, again, that we've now got Elizabeth being praised for being indecisive and Mary being criticised for being decisive, which seems completely sort of through the looking glass. And yet it's just what you want to make of it. And so much of it again and again has been what these histories have served to do in terms of subsequent years. And anti-Catholicism and nationalistic feeling has obviously been a great part of that. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Do you think that we could think a bit about their influences growing up and whether we can see a sort of contrast in who they were as well as just thinking about who we thought about them as since? Mary, of course, comes from a really impressive line of women. Her grandmother, Isabella of Castile, I mean, incredible woman, bringing up her children, really being this warrior figure, remarkable. Catherine of Aragon, her mother, undoubtedly one of the most accomplished women of the age, incredibly intelligent, also politically courageous, politically savvy, 
played a role as sort of regent when Henry was out in France. And so she only had to look to her own mother and grandmother to see exemplars of strong women. Whereas you could argue that Elizabeth... Who were her great role models and exemplars? I mean, obviously her mother, that was a problematic legacy for Elizabeth. And I'm not sure what would she have learned from her mother, perhaps. I mean, of course, there used to be that kind of historiographical cliche that one of the reasons that Elizabeth didn't marry was because she saw what happened to her mother, which I don't really buy. I think there were many more factors at play. Oh, well, I'm really struck, first of all, by the fact that actually there's been a parallel the way Elizabeth has overshadowed Mary Anne Boleyn has overshadowed Catherine of Aragon in terms of the sort of brilliance of both women I think a key influence on Elizabeth must have been Catherine Parr Mm. because the age at which Elizabeth was when Catherine was queen and because like Catherine of Aragon Catherine Parr was regent general whilst Henry was away and was this patron of the arts and musicians, artists, scholars, is a writer, is a thinker, as well as being sort of very finely dressed and embodying all of these wonderful qualities. So I think that Catherine Parr must have been a greater influence. I mean, Anne Boleyn, she doesn't really see her mother. She's sent away at three months and then Anne Boleyn pops in occasionally, really, to see the infant. And so if we're looking for any influences when she's a young child, Anne Boleyn's really not likely to be one of them. I think Anne Boleyn's influence is probably more the idea of her mother later rather than the mother herself. Does that seem fair to you? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. The Catherine Parr thing, I would absolutely agree with. We can't know quite how the episode with Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour, when Elizabeth was a sort of 13-year-old living with them, when this kind of remarkable episodes of having her dress kind of ripped off and what would be described now as some kind of abuse, I think. Yes, I mean, it looks like Thomas Seymour is going into Elizabeth's room early in the morning and is unwelcome. The descriptions that we have are all coming from two members of Elizabeth's household and they're a couple of years later and they are arguing a particular point which is to get Thomas Seymour in trouble so there's that but it does seem that Elizabeth is if we take them at face value getting up earlier to be dressed by the time that Seymour arrives so he doesn't catch her in bed at times where he's tried to tickle her in bed or to slap her bottom and things like this so definitely seems inappropriate But the incident you're referring to where Thomas Seymour cuts away at Elizabeth's dress whilst Catherine holds her. And I've always wondered about that word hold, whether it's Catherine's trying to protect her or whether she's holding her down or whether it's just totally playful. I admit a certain bias in probably wanting Catherine to come well out of this, but... I sometimes wonder if actually she sees the whole thing as totally playful. She sees Elizabeth as a child and it's only Thomas and Elizabeth who perceive it to be something different. I think it is possible. You could then say, but if Elizabeth had this close relationship with Catherine Parr, would she not have been able to talk about that with her? I don't think we know. And so I would certainly say that I think Catherine Parr would have been a significant influence on Elizabeth. And the other person, I think, who was a great influence on Elizabeth was Mary. She's so much older, isn't she? She's so much older. And when Elizabeth is born, Elizabeth is sent to be part of Mary's household. When Elizabeth was born, Mary was demoted from being princess to Lady Mary. So the relationship and her status changes. But Elizabeth then, quite literally, is in Mary's shadows. 
in the latter years. I mean, Elizabeth is, for example, in the coronation procession when Mary becomes queen. Elizabeth is in and around the court during Mary's reign. And so I think that there is no doubt that one of the most significant influences on Elizabeth was Mary. Elizabeth would never credit Mary for that. The very fact that she was with Mary for so much of her life would suggest that she was an influence, whether she liked it or not. How far do you think the two women take after their father? Mary was defiant, pig-headed, stubborn, passionate and actually quite politically shrewd. I mean, I think probably they were both quite similar, actually, in different ways to their father. I don't know what you think. I think you're right. I think that she is pig-headed and that she is confident and I think that she is single-minded. And I think those are quite similar to Henry, but also to Catherine of Aragon, actually, if we're thinking about inherited qualities. And she probably takes after him in terms of bloodthirstiness. Very much a sense that there is a right way and a wrong way to do something. And a conviction actually shared by pretty much everyone in Europe at the time that there is a correct way to worship and there is an incorrect way to worship and that the incorrect way is not just a sort of difference of opinion, but actually is something that's going to anger God and is heretical and is deeply problematic and needs to be stamped out. They share that too. I mean, first of all, I would say I think you know, that the old adage that's credited to Elizabeth, I have the body of a weak and feeble woman and the heart and stomach of a king. I always actually think that's pretty much sums Mary up perfectly. I think she does have actually the heart and stomach of a king, but she does have the body of a weak and feeble woman. And ultimately, that is the thing that, if you like, gets her. She dies prematurely, but also she has these failed pregnancies, which undoubtedly undermine her position as a monarch and as a ruler. So I think that's important. We should talk about religion, because even though I would want to argue that I think Mary needs to be considered much more as a political pioneer than a sort of Catholic bigot, the very fact is near on 300 men, women and children were burnt during Mary's reign. Now, that is, of course, true. And it was graphically depicted by John Fox. It's also important, though, to put it in a European context where burning for heresy was the accepted punishment and practice. So that, I think, is really important. It's also important to acknowledge that people were shopping their neighbours. Mary wasn't personally rounding people up and very much saw that perhaps there would need to be a few exemplar burnings and then believing because sermons would be preached at those burnings that really by burning those few people she would bring about conformity. I think it's also important to say that during Edward's reign Mary had said herself I would rather lay my head on a block than forsake my faith. So Mary saw religion in these very life or death terms but also there is the work of Eamon Duffy, who, particularly in his Fires of Faith book, says Marian burnings were devastatingly effective and that by the end of Mary's reign, there was broad acceptance of the Catholic Church. But more than that, he says that England was a laboratory for counter-Reformation thinking. And actually, rather than being seen as this repressive religious regime, which was about burnings and attempting to turn the clock back to 1529 or whatever, this was actually a religious policy that was enlightened, that was all about preaching and education and the production of catechisms and the support of schooling and so on. 
that was inevitably going to take time and that it was a very much a sort of hearts and minds re-Catholicisation. It wasn't simply or only repressive. And so I think it's important also to put Mary's religious policy in that context too. Undoubtedly, because of the ferocity of the persecution, you know, it was over a handful of years, and of course that it was so graphically depicted by John Fox, it is the abiding image of her reign. I think it's absolutely true that Mary didn't have time to do the other things that she wanted to do. And there were obstacles. The obvious one, of course, is always with the dissolution of the monasteries. The lands have been sold off. That They're no longer in crown possession. They can't be handed back to the church without basically annoying all of the gentry and nobility that are upholding Mary's reign. But what of the fact that the people that Mary was burning were not radical Protestants like Anabaptists or people that across Europe were held to be beyond the pale. They were Lutheran or perhaps Calvinist Protestants. They were fairly mainstream by this point in time. And at this period in the 1550s, I suppose in the south of France, you've got some persecution still going on of Calvinists. So there are places where these people are perishing, but it's becoming a bit outdated as an idea, you normally you would only do this if someone was really beyond the pale. And these are actually mainstream. What do you make of that? I mean, I think that's a fair point. But I suppose it's important to say that what Mary did, of course, is create the culture, as it were. And although her first religious proclamation was actually one about moderation and not attempting to, in a way, make windows into men's souls, that was the kind of tone of that initial proclamation. I think that there is a debate about how far and how much Mary was influenced by Philip with the influence of the Spanish Inquisition and so on. I think there's still so much work on Mary's reign to be done. Here it's really important to put a plea in for people to study languages because, I mean, it's true really of studies of the Tudor period more broadly. But there is no doubt that the links with Spain, I mean, it completely underpins the Tudor dynasty, the Anglo-Spanish alliance. And it's only been relatively recently that Mary's reign has been really studied by either Spanish scholars or scholars who are very well versed in those languages. I think it's really summed up when the very first academic conference I went to was in Oxford, goodness knows how many years ago, and the star turn was David Lodes, and it was all about Mary, really with the intensity of a nun, politically stupid, a little bit of, I think the sort of most innovative historiographical turn was around Maybe things sort of started to go to pot in 1556, but up until then, things were kind of going okay, And it was the sort of first failed pregnancy. But that was pretty much as radical as it went. And then a couple of years ago, there was a conference in UCL on Mary and half the panels were in Spanish. There were all kinds of scholars from Spain. And for them, Mary is a Catholic queen who is to be celebrated. It's a completely different perspective. And it's only really by engaging with those Spanish scholars and also exploring the Spanish archive that we'll really get to know quite what role Philip had as King of England and also his Spanish entourage. And we really are still in the relatively early stages of that work. I mean, it's only been quite recently, as you'll know, where there's actually been a biography as Philip as King of England. So it's just a really good example of, first of all, how such a popular, well-trodden field like the Tudors still evolves and we still get new discoveries, as it were, or new interpretations. 
but also how important languages are for the study of history. And I think the Tudor period has been for so long dominated by an Anglo-centricity that we've felt like it's Tudor England. And that's almost like the centre of the world. And so studies of Mary's reign have been really held back by that. And of course, she was half Spanish. Philip was a Spanish king. And until we really dig into that, I think we won't have a properly rounded view of Mary's reign and Mary's role, including in the burnings. Yes, and I would flag up the work of Gonzalo Valesco Berenga, who is producing new work on Mary and Philip and has the languages. He recently translated for me the very tricky letters of Fuensalida at the very beginning of the 16th century because I needed someone who could deal with that very difficult Spanish. Because I think you're absolutely right. There's that need to draw on Italian and German and French and Spanish sources and Latin, of course, when dealing with the Tudors is absolutely crucial. And I suppose thinking about religion, once again, we think about the fact that with Mary and Elizabeth, we've had these polarised accounts of their religious tolerance or lack of it. Elizabeth is often painted as this really quite forward-thinking, tolerant monarch, whereas certainly by the 1580s, you couldn't get much further from the truth. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And although the wording, if you like, of the religious settlement doesn't change, the degree to which it's enforced and the penalties for being in breach of it absolutely change. And by the 1580s, there's real repression and there's separatist groups popping up. And so, you know, it's a very, very different picture. And it's not this kind of great, tolerant, enlightened place. And you only have to look at what happens after Elizabeth's death in James's reign and so on to see that these are unresolved issues that are very much there. The accolades, as it were, of her as being this kind of religiously moderate, enlightened figure is largely because of the comparison which is drawn with Mary. Mary was this devout Catholic, blinded by her Catholicism, and the policies of her reign were entirely kind of informed by that. And because Elizabeth wasn't and didn't have an extreme position, somehow she's sort of seen as a result as being more enlightened. But I think the story of religious persecution across Elizabeth's reign is much more complicated than that. I think a listener might start to be getting a bit of an impression that you like Mary better than you like Elizabeth. Is there anything that you want to say about Elizabeth that's more positive? <laughs> I don't, I mean, people always assume, you know, you always get that question, you probably do too, you know, which of them would you like to go down the pub with, Mary or Elizabeth, or which of the Tudors? And like, <laughs> definitely, well, I'll have a quick drink with Mary because I've got a few things to ask her. But, you know, certainly when I've had a few drinks and want to have some fun, definitely Elizabeth. I mean, there is no doubt that Elizabeth, queen over so many decades, that in itself is quite remarkable because also the very fact that she wasn't married meant actually that her body was observed and at stake in all kinds of ways. And we think about Elizabeth's makeup and the sort of mask of youth as if it was almost an act of vanity, but there was a political dead end coming up. I suppose this is one of the sort of key charges that I would level against Elizabeth on one level is the fact that she left the succession unresolved and didn't pass on the Tudor dynasty. It died with her. But having said that, she's this unmarried woman who is ageing visibly and that brings about all kinds of anxieties and concerns. So the fact that she endures all that, I do think she's surrounded by quite remarkable figures, both culturally as well as politically. 
there is no doubt she was an absolute survivor, a consummate survivor. And I think that's true both before and after her accession. Yeah, I mean, I've got a great deal of respect for Elizabeth, but I suppose I just think that she has profited from unfair comparisons with Mary, unfair from Mary's point of view. But also, as alluded to earlier, the sort of nationalist tropes which surround her and because of the Armada in particular. You know, in the 1930s, there were all kinds of films that were made drawing parallels with the Nazi threat and the Spanish Armada. I mean, Elizabeth has become something for every age, whether it be the sort of career woman putting country and career before family and marriage, being this much more perhaps sexually voracious figure, actually, even though people describe her as the Virgin Queen because of her relationships with Robert Dudley, or this great national heroine. And I was always struck when I began, I think, my research that in the, I think it was the 2000 BBC Greatest Britons poll, Elizabeth was up there as one of the greatest Britons. And in a kind of similar, although less well-known poll, I think on another channel at the same time, Mary was one of the most evil men and women in history. And there's just that remarkable polarisation. And ultimately, I've been banging on about the fact there needs to be a film on Mary, especially when we compare with how many dramas and films on Elizabeth. And I don't know whether I've won you over a bit to Mary, but I would hope that you would at least see the merits of a cinematic extravaganza on Mary's rise to power. I think it's a brilliant idea. Let's sit down and write it. (laughs) Absolutely, let's write it and then we can have fun about casting it. That should be a lot of fun. Okay, well, watch this space, folks. This has been great, Anna. I've so enjoyed this conversation and we should do this again. Let's absolutely do it again. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.